Well, for many of us, when we think of waiting, uh, we think of doing nothing. Uh, Passive waiting, if you like. We imagine ourselves in the traffic jam, waiting endlessly for uh, the car in front of us to move one meter forward, Uh, sitting in the bank, waiting for our number to be called, Uh, waiting for the grab car driver to finally turn up. But there is such thing as active waiting. Uh, It's the kind of uh, waiting that produces frantic activity, Uh, waiting for SST to be introduced waiting for exam period to arrive, waiting for bonus time. And in each of those cases, that future reality stimulates us to action, to to study hard, to work hard, uh, perhaps to spend hard. And our passage this morning is all about waiting for the King. King Jesus will return clothed in majesty and glory, But our waiting for that day must not be passive. It must be active. We must be involved in frantic activity, serving the king. Well, the key to rightly understanding any parable is the context. And the context is given for us in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. We're reminded here that Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. Uh, That journey began in uh, chapter 9 when uh, Peter identified Jesus as the Christ. And we know that that journey will end in verse 28 as Jesus rides on the donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has predicted three times that he will uh, suffer and die and then be resurrected on the third day. Uh, And he's explained for us over the last six chapters the only way that we can enter into his kingdom by uh, by turning to him in repentance and trusting him, casting ourselves on God's mercy that he might welcome us in. And that came to a climax last week, if you remember, with Zacchaeus. As Jesus declared, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And so it is this statement that leads us into the parable here uh, because Jesus is here. He's on the verge of entering into Jerusalem uh, and the disciples are absolutely convinced that the kingdom of God is about to arrive. Again, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. See, the disciples, they know the Old Testament. They know that Jerusalem is the place where God's king rules. Uh, They know the prophecies of the Old Testament that, that, that when God's Messiah arrives, he will save his people and he will crush his enemies. And so as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, what the disciples are expecting is that Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom of God right there and then. They're expecting, verse 27 probably, that Jesus is going to turn up and slaughter his enemies. But the parable goes on to explain that is not how it's going to be. Yes, Jesus' rule is certain. Yes, he will soon be crowned king at the cross, but the full experience of this kingdom will not be immediate. 
Jesus' kingdom will first be spiritual, it will not be political. You might remember at Jesus' trial, as Jesus is interrogated by Pilate, uh, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus' intention is to save people for his heavenly kingdom, not to set up a political kingdom in first century Israel. Now, the disciples are suffering here from what we might call an over-realized eschatology. Now, I know that sounds something like a snail, right? But eschatology is a technical word that means the study of the end times. If you say that someone has an over-realized eschatology, it's a very long and smart way of just saying that someone is promising too much too soon. It's promising the things of the end now. And this over-realized eschatology is one of the the main problems in in, uh, lots of false teaching. Uh, For example, in the prosperity gospel. Uh, The prosperity gospel, it applies the promises of the Old Testament to Christians today. Uh, It tells them if uh, they have enough faith in Jesus, they'll be healthy and they'll be wealthy, they'll be healed from their sicknesses, they'll be victorious over sin. And that uh, teaching, that theology, is an over-realized eschatology. It's promising too much too soon. It's not that those promises are entirely wrong, because one day Jesus will return, he will bring in the kingdom of God, and there will be perfect healing, and we will have resurrection bodies, and we will be victorious over sin, and death will be destroyed forever. The problem is the timing. They're expecting those things of the end now. And it's precisely that kind of misunderstanding uh, which the disciples had in his day and that we often have in our day that Jesus is addressing here. Now, it's uh, not a surprising uh, step to make because, of course, in Jesus' ministry, he's, he's done all kinds of miracles. He has. He's healed the sick and he's driven out demons and he's raised the dead and he's opened the eyes of the blind. Jesus' ministry has given a glimpse of the kingdom to come. And it's not really a big step for us to think that uh, we could move from Jesus' ministry to ours, to think what Jesus did is what we should experience as well. But Jesus in this uh, parable wants us to be really clear. That is a false doctrine. It's an over-realized eschatology. It's a failure to understand what Jesus has been teaching all along, that the true pattern of discipleship is suffering now and glory later. Well, let's get into the parable then at verse 12. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive uh, for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, the parable is not too difficult to understand. The nobleman is Jesus. The far country is heaven, and the kingdom is the kingdom of God. And it's helpful to know that this uh, parable, Jesus is actually basing it on a real-life story of a guy called Archelaus. Archelaus was the son of Herod. Uh, Herod was the one that killed all the babies uh, when Jesus was born. Uh, But before Archelaus was crowned king in 4 BC, he needed to travel Uh, to Rome, to Caesar Augustus, to be crowned as king and then only 
return. And so Jesus draws a parallel from that very famous story in his day to his own. In the same way, there will be a delay in the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. Having died on the cross, he will be resurrected, he will ascend into heaven, he will be crowned as king. But it will take some time for him to return, to bring in uh, his kingdom in all of its fullness. And what that means is that the, the age in which that we live right now is the age of the now and not yet. Uh, the kingdom is now because right now Jesus is seated in heaven. He's, he's on the throne. He's, he's ruling over the world. Uh, through faith in Christ, now we can be forgiven. We can be saved. We can enter into his kingdom. We are new creations now. We are declared righteous now. We have all the spiritual blessings of the kingdom to come now. But the kingdom is also not yet, because Jesus is yet to return. We are yet to receive our resurrection bodies. We are yet to be liberated from, uh, from our, uh, our, our flesh and our sin. We are waiting for the overthrow of death. We live in the now and not yet. Jesus is king now, but we wait for him to return and for every knee to bow. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. Now we're told of what uh, will happen in this now and not yet period in verse 14. The citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Now again, this was the story of uh, Archelaus. Before Archelaus went to see Caesar Augustus to receive his kingdom, he made himself very unpopular by uh, slaughtering 3,000 Jews in the temple and cancelling Passover. Bad idea. So the Jews sent 50 uh, important leaders after him to the emperor to beg him not to make him king, and he didn't. Now, the same is true uh, of Christ in some ways. He is king now. And yet many people deny him. Many people refuse to let him be king over their lives. So the Jews of Jesus' day, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, they will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate will ask them, shall I crucify your king? And crucified he will be. And so today, our experience in this this now and not yet period, in workplace after workplace, country after country, family after family, people refusing to submit to the rule of Jesus in their lives. Now, Psalm 2 that we read in our Old Testament reading shows how foolish such an endeavor really is. You might remember in Psalm 2, all the earth and its rulers gather together in rebellion against God. Their battle cry is freedom. They want freedom from God's rule. And God's response is laughter. He set his king on Zion. He's already declared, you are my son. He's already promised he will give him the nations for his inheritance. And he's already prophesied the future, that he will crush his enemies with a rod of iron. And that is the present Reality, despite the world's rejection of Jesus and despite the delay in Jesus' return, we can be absolutely sure Jesus is king. 
God has enthroned him. Jesus will return one day as the ruler of this world. And he will bring judgment with him. Now, sometimes it troubles us a little bit that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus went to heaven. Uh, actually, it shouldn't, because God's, God's uh, perspective of time is very different to ours. Uh, in 2 Peter 3, uh, we're told that for God, a, a thousand years is as a day. And so in God's mind, it's only been a weekend. His delay doesn't mean that he's not coming. His absence doesn't mean that he's not ruling. His reign is real. You can only see it now in the lives of Christians who claim him as Lord. But it is real, and one day it will be revealed with thunder and lightning from heaven as Jesus returns in all his majesty, enthroned as king. The question we're posed in this passage is, do I want Jesus to be king? Will I let him rule my life? Will I be one of his servants or one of his enemies? Those are the only two options we're presented with here. Well, if we are his servants, we're told that our waiting is to be active. Uh, in the light of Jesus' enthronement, point two, we are to prioritize the king's business. We are to maximize all our resources in service of the king. So we look at verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten miners and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, a miner was a piece of uh, currency uh, worth a significant amount of money, probably three to four months of wages, maybe 10 to 12,000 ringgit. And for a laborer in Jesus' day who was paid day by day, that was a serious amount of money. Now, the nobleman expects his servants to engage in business until he returns. Now, we mustn't miss here, I think, the incredible privilege then it is to be recruited by Jesus into his service. I hope you see it at the Christian life that way. No matter what sacrifices that you are making in following Jesus, no matter what following Jesus means for your, for your time, for your energy, for your money, I, I hope you see how blessed it is actually to be called to serve Jesus. I think if that privilege was taken from us, we would mourn. But what is this business we are to engage in? Uh, it is, of course, not a literal business. It's not that we kind of go out there into the marketplace, uh, you know, try and make as much money as we can, uh, and then give it to the church or something like that. We can only understand the meaning of the parable from the context. And we've already seen that Luke expects us to read this passage closely with the, with the one previous. Have a look again back at verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. And the these things that he's referring to here is there in verses 9 and 10. Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What is the business of King Jesus? Simply, it is to seek and to save the lost. 
That's why Jesus has come. That is why Jesus is on a journey to the cross. That's why Jesus has been preaching everywhere, calling people to repent and to put their faith in him as their saviour and king. Jesus is on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And if that is our king's business, then I take it that that is to be our business as well. We are to to prioritize the preaching of the gospel. We are to to, to gather and maximize all the resources that he has given us in seeking and saving the lost. Now, to put it another way, if we go back on the screen to chapter 16, verse 9, Jesus said there, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Use whatever resources you have in service of the gospel. Now that is amazing work, isn't it, when you think about it? So you can work as a doctor, and you can heal your patients if you are good, but they're all one day going to die. You can work as an engineer, and you can build amazing structures, but one day they're all going to be demolished. You can work as a stay-at-home mum, and you can change the diapers, and wash the dishes, and mop the floor, and you can be sure you'll have to do it again tomorrow. Now, you can work hard to eradicate poverty and to help refugees and to end uh, global wars, and they will all be good things to do, but it won't make anyone immune from suffering. None of those works, as valuable as they are, as important as they are, uh, as they are for uh, us as Christians to engage in, compare with this work of the Lord, this work of seeking and saving the lost, Zacchaeus' life was turned upside down, turned from an evil, greedy man to a generous man following the king, saved from judgment, brought into life. That is the work here that Jesus wants us to prioritize as we wait for his return. Now, I think it's important at this point that we Uh, correct a common misinterpretation of this passage because many uh, rightly notice that that there's a a large similarity between this parable and the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Uh, They are similar parables. They're told in different contexts. There are significant differences. (coughs) But in Matthew 25, the servants are not given minors. They are given talents. And the problem with that word uh, talent is that we frequently misunderstand it. So I don't know about you, but when I hear the word talent, I think of my gifts, I think of the skills that I have, I think of what I'm good at. And uh, many on that interpretation will say that what Jesus wants us to do is use whatever skills we have, use whatever natural abilities we have to, to serve Jesus. And so excel in your sport and excel in your career and excel in your studies and excel in your music. Uh, our diocesan theme for this year is actually releasing the talents, and it could be easily misunderstood along those lines if we're not careful. But it's a wrong interpretation because in Matthew 25, the word talent is not a skill. It's like the minor. It's a sum of money. Jesus is not talking about simply using whatever natural abilities we, can, we have. Jesus is talking about investing in the kingdom. He's talking about putting whatever resources we have, whatever opportunities we have to work 
for the gospel, whether it's our time or our energy or our gifts or our money or whatever it is, as we wait for Jesus to return, the priority of Jesus' servants is to be promoting the preaching of the gospel. Well, as the parable continues, we see in point three that when King Jesus does return, he will summon his servants for judgment. We see that all people, both Christian and non-Christian alike, are going to have to give an account to Jesus for the way that they have served him. This is a, a, a common theme throughout the New Testament, if you look up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, where you must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or Romans chapter 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so in verse 15 here, when the king returns, having received the kingdom, he orders these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by their business. The glorified King Jesus will call all of his servants to give an account now, there's ten servants in the parable, but they only focus on three. First, we look at the faithful servants that receive commendation. Look at verse 16. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you, will, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your miner has made five miners. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So we have the commendation. Well done, good servant. We have the reason. Because you have been faithful over a very little. And the reward, ten cities. Five cities. Now, note that what makes them faithful here is not the quantity of money that they manage to make here. I mean, both are impressive returns by any standard. But the reason for their commendation is their faithfulness. Because they've obeyed the king's command and used the resources to serve him. I think we have here a helpful uh, just general principle in ministry. If someone is faithful in a little... They can, be, they can be trusted with more. Uh, those who are chosen for church leadership will be those who have been faithful with the small things entrusted to them. So also with the kingdom. If we're faithful with a little now, we'll be rewarded with much later when Jesus returns. Now Jesus has already taught this once in chapter 16 up on the screen. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here is the principle. If we faithfully serve Jesus now, we will be entrusted in, with more later. Now, that is not to undermine the grace of the gospel. We need to remember here that the minor is a gift from the king. And, and even the opportunity to serve King Jesus is his gift uh, of his grace. Uh, moreover here, we had to notice that in the parable, the reward doesn't really match the effort, does it? I, I mean, the, the king is just extravagantly generous. You know, we'd be expecting the king maybe to give, him what, give them maybe a 20% commission for, you know, for their good performance, you know, maybe two minors or one minor. But his response is extravagant, isn't it? Ten cities. Five cities. Just, just imagine how much, if you added it all up, how much, you know, KL and PJ and Putrajaya and Malacca and Penang, just add them all up, how much would it be worth? Trillions of dollars. Servants of Jesus are called by grace. They're rewarded by grace. Extravagantly. Now just to make sure we've really got this, I want to underline it. It's not about how much we serve. It's about our heart in service. It's about our faithfulness in service. Are we obeying the king. And given Jesus' character, then every prayer, every invitation to a non-Christian to hear the gospel, every word of encouragement, every Bible study led or youth class or Sunday school lesson, every arrangement of the chairs for community lunch, done in response to the grace of God, it's all noticed. It will be rewarded. Well done good and faithful servant. But really, the first two servants are just setting up for the third one. He is the focus of the parable. And you notice how so much of the, the, the passage is actually focused on the third servant. And I think really the big point of this parable is the tragedy of being found by Jesus to have done nothing so verse 20, the third servant, another came saying, Lord, here is your minor, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. The master returns, he finds this servant has done absolutely nothing. And what's his excuse for his laziness? His master is severe. Is he severe? Well, he will punish his enemies with severity. We see that in verse 27. But towards his servants, who this man is, he's full of such grace, such generosity. He's already given him a minor. He'll give him much more. But this wicked servant doesn't take account of his master's grace at all. And so in verse 22, the servant is condemned. 
The king says to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest, maybe you know, 0.05% or whatever it is for the deposit rate. The reality is that this wicked servant has a baseless and pathetic excuse for failing to serve the king. Is he a believer? I guess he would have looked like one. But he wasn't really, was he? He disobeyed the king's command. He resisted the king's rule. And churches will be full of such people who go through the motions but never actually submit to the kingship of Jesus in their lives. Maybe they've got all kinds of excuses. Jesus, you demand too much. It's too difficult in following you. I'm too afraid. Too busy. And such excuses show a failure to grasp the grace and the goodness of the king. What a privilege it is to serve him. And such excuses, spurning his kindness, are met with judgment. Look at verse 24. He said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. They said to him, Lord, he has ten miners. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken Away. And Jesus is saying, if you will not serve the king, one day you will lose your opportunity. If you faithfully serve the king, you'll find that in his grace, he'll give you more and more opportunities to serve him. One writer puts it this way, the reward of duty done is a duty to be done. But failure to serve him, you will lose the privilege and so this parable gives us a warning, I think. Jesus has been in, will be enthroned as king. He has been enthroned as king by grace in this now and not yet period. He has commissioned us as his servants. One day he's returning to call us to account. Whatever happens, we do not want to appear before him, having done nothing. Passive waiting will be condemned. We're to get busy, get active. In response to the grace we have received, we're to use all that he's given us to honour and love and serve the king so that his gospel can go forth. Now, as usual, Jesus' parable ends with a punch in verse 27, which I think underlines for us just how important this is. Look at verse 27 again. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I think if we have a picture of Jesus, you know, meek and mild, you know, holding the babies in his arms, these words might shock us a little bit. But that's probably because we've We've so uh, tamed Jesus and, and fit him into our own conceptions and, and never actually listened to the actual words of Jesus in Scripture. 
that we've convinced ourselves that Jesus will never judge anyone. Jesus will never punish anyone. And hell isn't really a real place. But here are the words of Jesus himself. He is the king. He will return as judge. And his enemies who fail to submit to his rule, they will be slaughtered before him. I think this is uh, picked up in uh, Revelation chapter 19, which uh, again picks up the language of Psalm 2. From his mouth, Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now notice how black and white this all is. Either you're Jesus' faithful servant or you're his enemy. There's no other category. It's, it's, it's one or the other. And whether you're his servant or whether you're his enemy depends ultimately on whether we will submit to Jesus' rule over our life. A disciple of Jesus is by definition, Luke chapter 9, someone who will deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. And so if we're here today as someone who has not yet put our trust in Jesus as our King and Lord, then what Jesus is saying is that presently we are his enemies. We're in deep danger. But Jesus calls each one of us to, to come to him, to receive his grace, to be recruited as his servants. He will forgive us. He will use us. That's why he went to the cross. Well, finally, our application for us if we are Christians. Well, I think the key point is very clear, isn't it? If we are one of Jesus' servants, then this passage tells us we must maximize our gospel ministry in serving the king. We're to do it with our money uh, rather than just you know, accumulating possessions. We are to think, how can I be using this money God has given me in serving the kingdom? We are to do it with our time. We are to think about, how can I use the time that God has given me to proclaim the gospel at the workplace, at home, etc.? Maybe I won't take that promotion because it will take me away from opportunities to serve Jesus. If, we, if I have uh, gifts in word ministry, then maybe the question for me is, how am I going to maximize those gifts in serving the king? As, as I teach my Sunday school lesson, as I run my growth group, as I attend Christianity Explored. And of course, for some of us here, maximizing our service of the king may involve doing an internship or becoming a pastor or a women's worker. Of course, it's going to look different for each and every one of us. But what we must all do individually is sit down and think, how can I seek and save the lost? How can I help others seek and save the lost? How can I help people be rescued from the coming judgment of God and made Jesus' servants? 
Well, as we serve King Jesus, we know that there are going to be discouragements that will come our way. Uh, there will be some, uh, as in the parable, who, who look like servants of Jesus but never get on with the king's business and, and will be tempted to be like them and just be passive in our Christian life. More than that, there'll be people around us who, who live in opposition to King Jesus, who, who hate his rule and perhaps even persecute us for following Jesus. And again, we'll be tempted to stop serving our king, to, to put our minor in a handkerchief. But in the end, each one of us, individually, will stand before Christ's judgment throne and give an account for our lives. And on that day, it won't matter how other people responded to Jesus. It will matter how you have. And this parable assures us, whatever sacrifices we make, whatever opposition we face, whatever tiredness or trials we must embrace, it will be worth it. Because when our gracious master returns with his perfect kingdom, he will address us by name. Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. Just imagine what joy it would be to hear those words from the lips of our Saviour to be called into his service forever. We're waiting for the king. Will we wait passively? Or will we wait actively? Will we submit to his rule? Will we be busy in his service? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, Jesus has been enthroned as King. That having died on that cross as our crucified King, that he, he was resurrected on the third day and he ascended into heaven and sat down at your right hand in absolute power and authority. And Lord, we know he will return as the judge of the living and the dead. We thank you, Father, that you have saved us and that you have called us into your service. Help us, Father, to count what an immense privilege that is and help each one of us to be faithful in our, in our service of our King. Father, we pray for those who are still enemies of Jesus, who have not yet responded to his rule. We pray that you would bring them to repentance. We pray that you would give us opportunities uh, as, as we meet them to share the good news of the gospel with them. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your grace and your love. We pray this in Jesus' name.